Hi, this is Dimitri Yiannopoulos. This is episode five of the podcast. I actually have someone who I've known from the history department for, I believe, three years, over three years. Um, she's my academic advisor for the Teaching of History program. Uh, I would like, uh, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Julie Peters. Um, if you have to call me something fancy, you can call me Professor Peters. Sometimes people call me Dr. Peters, but I do not have a PhD, so uh, I don't I don't get to have that that accolade. Accolade, but I, I do prefer just to be called Julie. Um, I am the uh, associate director of the Teaching History program at UIC. This is my 18th year, um, and I am also the undergraduate advisor for the program. I teach a methods course in teaching social studies, and then I also supervise uh, student teachers. And uh, I teach the seminar for that. Uh, so those are my major roles at UIC. I'm a former high school history social studies teacher from way back when. And that's a little bit about me. Yeah, that's honestly very interesting uh, how you've been at UIC for 18 years and how the fact that you don't have a PhD and some people call you doctor. I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm technically not a doctor, but if you want to call me that, you just bloat my ego a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, and I don't blame people. I mean, they want to they want to be respectful, and most people do have their PhD. As it just turns out, it wasn't a requirement for my position. I don't teach actual history at UIC. I teach teaching of history. So I have a master's degree from UIC. I have a master's degree in it's a, it's the MAT program. So it's a master's degree in history with a the teaching license instead of, um, you know, a thesis and dissertation track. So that's, those were the credentials that I needed to get the job. Um, so I, I don't really mind it's just that I know so many people who've <laughs> worked their tail off to get their PhD. So I don't want to claim that, uh, cause they don't deserve it. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that people are trying to be respectful. It drives me crazy when people call me Miss Peters or Mrs. Peters. It's like, well, we could work a little harder at that. Um, my marital status has nothing to do with anything here. But uh, Julie usually works out best. Yeah. In terms of uh, education in schools with teaching of history, there was a recent controversy. I know you teach a politics class uh, teaching politics uh, with the Virginia election and how education was a big issue in that election and how the Republican candidate successfully uh put the issue of critical race theory, and he ended up winning a lot of uh, suburban women. Uh, a lot of people, when, he, when the Democratic candidate said uh, parents should not have an input in their education, as someone who teaches politics, how would you teach that to students? Or is it something you wouldn't really talk about? Is it a little bit too controversial? And I know the critical race theory things kind of, it's not really taught in schools, but it's like very controversial. Okay, so um, just to clarify a few things, the, the class that I teach is called Teaching Civics Literacy. So actually what it really is, it's a methods class in teaching pre-service teachers how to teach civics and that civics mandate. So there is, you know, the structures of government and everything like that, but there's there's a lot more to it than just the politics. It's about how to teach young people to be civically literate and to be civically engaged. Um, that said, you know, when you, you ask the question, how do I, how would I um, talk about this? Are you talking about it with high school students or with teaching candidates? Uh, I would say with both, with high school students and teaching candidates, obviously there's a different approach. There's a different mm -hmm. approach. While with uh, many college students, they 
kind of have more of an awareness and they kind of care more about the environment around them, especially if you're a history major while high school students, I I feel are more apathetic. You have to show them why they should care. Right. Well, let let, let me just uh, answer that question in two two categories then. I mean, I would talk about anything to anybody. I don't I don't shy away from controversy. Obviously, I would do it differently with high school students. Um, in in terms of teaching of history candidates, they really need to be aware of the um, the political social political background of of their position in the community and schools. That parents many parents actually do. Um, want to know what their kids are being taught. And I actually think that they do have a right to know what their students are being taught. And they do have a right to have input, but they elect people to do that. They elect a school board, they hire teachers. Uh, That's that federalism concept, right? Um, You know, I I really do believe that, and this is not an original thought, that that all of the backlash about critical race theory is it's fear-based. People, some people are afraid, they feel threatened that their belief system or their way of life or whatever is, you know, this, that their students are going to be indoctrinated to believe this terrible, dangerous, you know, socialist, radicalized thing, which is nonsense. Um, but the fear is not nonsense. The fear is, the fear is nonsense, but it's real. And, and as a teacher, you have to be aware of your position in that dynamic, um, that you have to be able to know how to talk to parents who have a right to know what's going on in their schools. And they have a right to, I think, you know, um, have some say so in how their children are being educated. That said, they can always go to private school if they don't like it. Um, but it's fear, right? It's just fear that their way of life is somehow being uh, threatened and that they're somehow their children are going to be brainwashed and, and run away from them and believe terrible radical things. The, the truth of the matter, the sad truth of the matter is something that you kind of touched on. It's not so much that high school students are apathetic. I don't want to say that at all. I think they, they sometimes um, take on a behavior of indifference. I don't think they're apathetic at all. I think they just don't know yet what, what to do with the things that they're being challenged to believe or what they believe. And a lot of times, I don't think they're necessarily ready. We do it anyway. <laughs> They're not necessarily ready to change their, to move off their mark. For example, when I was in high school, I was actually very conservative. The reason is because my parents were conservative and that was what I knew. And so when people challenged me, it didn't really actually happen in my history classes at all. But had it happened, I'm almost certain that it would have pushed back. Yeah, obviously. Right? That I was still forming my identity and my identity identity was still formed by what I was raised to believe. It wasn't until I got to college and specifically to UIC that I had my head turned, right? And that I was starting to question all of that stuff because I think I was developmentally ready. So I'll I'll wrap up my my response here to say parents don't actually really have to worry all that much because their kids in high school are going to go, but a lot of the time, and they're not going to really totally understand it. And they're not going to you know, go off and, and, and join, you know, become Maoists or something or, you know, run to the streets. If they don't already have a sense of that, it's just sort of a layer of awareness that teachers might be putting down. It, it's probably going to take some time for those fruits to bear. And it's not going to happen necessarily until the students are a little bit older away, starting to question all of their beliefs, if that happens at all. So they really don't have to be afraid of all that much. Yeah, I have a similar story to you. I was raised in a conservative family, obviously, and I've gone to question and I have a, I'm have a little bit different than a lot of my peers in 
that I can understand the conservative viewpoint. A lot of the times where a lot of people, they like just brush it off. They're like, oh, they're bigoted, they're racist or whatever. Like, right. some of them are. So this is a little cut because we had just a minor issue. So what I was saying is I grew up in a conservative household and I kind of have that viewpoint of being able to understand the conservative viewpoint. Uh, while a lot of my colleagues, I feel they don't, they're not able to understand it. They don't want to understand it. I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's like very, I don't know. It's very strange. Like, a, I don't know if you see that in your classes at all. Or I see. Oh no, I see that. Absolutely. And I, I, I do think it's, um, it's an unfortunate um, development in that um, if people don't necessarily um, embrace the beliefs of the majority in the classroom, especially um, if, you know, most people are feeling more, you know, left of center on, on points of view, that a lot of times they just retreat into silence because you're conditioned not to push back. And I mean, obviously that points to a larger problem of the inability of people to uh, engage in civil discourse and to hear each other's points of view in a way that allows us to understand that we live in a pluralistic society and certainly a university needs to be pluralistic as well. Um, and if people feel afraid to say what they have to say or to push back, uh, that's a problem. Yeah, I, uh, I believe that's a problem as well. Uh, for me, there's sometimes that I'll say something controversial or I'll be like, I'll think about it and I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to get some pushback from that because, and I'm not in the mood to deal with the pushback. So like, I know one time uh, I was in a class and I gave a tepid criticism of the 1619 project saying that a lot of historians have criticized it and it's not really a good teaching resource. I think the ideas are solid, but I think some of the historical evidence is generally not pretty accurate. And I think, uh, we should question that and we should tell students, hey, while the ideas are valid, obviously, that they, they have some merit to them. Uh, the 1619 Project has some historical inaccuracies and that should be questioned. Well, everything should be questioned. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what historians are supposed to do. Um, they need to question um, the, the historiography of materials, the, the bias, the, you know, the reliability of the sources, uh, whether it's that or anything, that's the craft of being a historian. That's, that's being um, an engaged thinker. So, um, I, I mean, I think you can understand why people may have felt um, quick to criticize that because it probably sounded like you were maybe criticizing the whole thing and there's so much of that going on anyway, but whatever it is, Whatever it is, I mean, as long as, you know, you're not, you or anybody isn't saying something, you know, racist or misogynistic or, you know, um, threatens other people's identities, then if we're talking about the reliability of sources or things like that, and then I do think that um, there needs to be space for um, intellectual rigor and, and critical thinking, whether that's in the high school history classroom or at a university classroom or, you know, at Starbucks. Yeah, it's hard. And it's hard. And it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to have good conversations. Obviously, a lot of people just yell. They resort to yelling. They resort to uh, 
painting the other side as like some sort of evil, like there's some sort of unredeemable evil. It's kind of a us versus them mentality. Like yeah. the other side yeah. is extremely evil. They're unredeemable. Their ideas, they hate this country. That's more of a conservative viewpoint on leftism or uh, with conserv- with uh, leftists saying about conservatives, like, oh, they're all bigoted, they're all racist. I right. think that line right. of thinking is very dangerous, and it's kind it's of... Very, it's very da- dangerous. You know, one of the things that, that um, I'm able to share with students in the teaching civics literacy class is um, the, the strategy of a structured academic controversy, which is really boring, because what it does is it helps students take a look at two sides of an issue and learn to... Um, find the main points of the arguments and the facts to back them up and then listen to the opponent, if you will. Um, and it, it's a strategy that that helps students listen and repeat back what the other person has said. And then the, the exercise involves reaching consensus. So it's not a debate. It's not an argument. Nobody's winning. Nobody's losing. Um, but it, it it's designed to sort of suck the passion out of something and say, let's listen to the arguments on both sides of this, and then let's see what we can talk about, what we have in common, where we can find um, common ground and consensus building. So um, I think that it's it's an essential skill and certainly one that um, needs a lot of work. Yeah, in in schools and in society, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. When you look online, you see a lot of debate. The people who are debaters, they debate on the left, they debate on the right, obviously. they debate on the right. Looking at that, like that culture, uh, seeing how like, oh, you won the debate, you lost the debate. I think the consensus uh, way of thinking, trying to understand and isolate the facts without trying to determine who you think is right and who you think is wrong is a very powerful tool. It is. It is. Now, of course, I always say there's limits, right? That, you know, if you deny someone's right, right to exist or someone's identity or someone's humanity, those arguments are not allowed. But if we're going to talk about the facts of a case, whatever whatever it is, the facts of of an argument, uh, critical race theory, sixteen nineteen project, um, anything, anything, whether a road should go through, you know, a neighborhood, we need to be able to hear the other side. And honestly, it's a very smart thing to learn how to do because if you know what the other side is thinking then you know how to counter those arguments and you know how to achieve your goals by learning how to reach out and and find that common ground where you can start to work on things and and move your agenda forward so it's not just nice personally i think it's a very smart thing to do yeah, it's I, stupid to not know what the other side is thinking and to just yell and and demonize yeah, I remember I, I had a classmate who didn't agree with a particular issue, but he was forced to debate for that particular issue. And he actually did a very good job back in high school mm-hmm. like, debating it, even though he didn't agree with it. He knew all the points and he eloquently put everything uh, on the table. It was like an eye opening experience for him because he was able to debate effectively the other side and it kind of made it kind of improved his skills as uh, some, someone who talks, someone who uh, communicates, obviously made him a better communicator and a better debate. Right. By, but uh, I, I, I want to interject and just say that, you know, if if only that had been done in a, in a, um, a different format than debate, then he might have also learned how to be a better listener. 
right? Debate often teaches us how to be better communicators and how to argue our points so that we can, you know, score the win. Um, we also need to be better listeners of each other, and that's very difficult um, to do. But one way that you can, that you can do it is is assign a person a point of view they don't necessarily agree with. You know, again, as long and when you're in high school, you have to. Well, I think anywhere really, you have to be um, very sensitive that you're not forcing a person, you're not traumatizing a person by asking them to um, argue a point that is is very very threatening. To them, so you want to choose your issues carefully as well. Um, I think some are appropriate and some would be inappropriate. Yeah, um, yeah. Another topic I, I've been thinking about is the teacher shortage that's been uh, exacerbated by the COVID nineteen pandemic. All the time on my YouTube feed, I get teachers who say, "Oh, I'm done. I quit after how x many years. Uh, I just can't take it anymore." There's there's a lot of issues at my school. I just don't want to work. I really love teaching. I really love the kids, but some administrative practices, COVID-19, a lot of other factors made it. So yeah, I'm done. I'm, I like teaching, but no thanks. I don't know if you've personally seen that or. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a critical um, teacher shortage. And I, I don't think it's just COVID-19. I, mean, I think that certainly brought a lot of things to the fore, maybe gave people the, um, the opportunity and maybe the reason that final push out. Um, it, it, teaching is hard. Teaching has always been hard. But honestly, I don't think I don't think teaching is as much fun as it used to be. When I was a teacher, it, it was hard, but it was fun, you know. And and I think, look, here's what ha- what happened. When I was teaching, as long as I was nice and I had good classroom management and I had engaging lessons. Um, then I got good marks and I got tenure and everybody was happy. I don't think there was enough accountability when I was a teacher to make sure that I was doing everything in my power to reach students who needed more support, to do you know formative assessments, to get data, to really kind of make sure I was meeting the needs of all of my students and not just the students who did well. You know, um, and so I, I'm very much in favor of a, a lot of the accountability that's been brought into the profession. It's just not okay for me to have a C student come in and leave as a C student and have me not figure out what might be done to help that student achieve more or students with, you know, special needs or any of these things, you know, disabilities or different abilities. The problem, I think, is that it went, like most things, went way too far on the other side. So now there is so much assessment. There's so much accountability. There's so much evaluation. There's so much data that it, it just kind of sucked the fun out of the job. And teachers, I'm not sure I could go back and do that job today, right? Because it's so much work. And it's not that work is you know a bad thing, but it's so much where like, it never ends. You're always being evaluated. Your students are always being evaluated. It's never, never seems to be good enough. And um, that teaching is hard enough without that on top of it. And I think that a lot of people are finally saying, you know what? I tried my best. I loved doing this when I started. I don't love this anymore. You have to love teaching to really hang in there. Otherwise, you'd just be miserable and just, you know, wait out your years. Um, and so, it, it, that, that, that movement toward ac- accountability and data and everything has got to shift closer back to the center again to attract people to this profession. 
otherwise, there are a lot of other good options for smart people, um, gifted people to do. Um, and, and they're not going to go into teaching. Um, or they're, they're going to go into it, but they're not going to stay. You know, our numbers are actually up in our program. I get people who want to change their major a couple every month. It's kind of amazing. But who, who finishes the program? Who stays in teaching? And I think that that's because the teacher shortage, people are going to get jobs, but are they going to stay? Or after a few years, are they just going to be so exhausted by this notion that it's never good enough and you could never do enough that you just, your spirit can't take it anymore. Um, And I think that that's where we're going to have to go um, if we're going to retain people in this profession. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's uh it's very disheartening to see so many longtime teachers, so many good teachers uh, leaving the job. I guess I'll point out the story of my neighbor, a former special ed teacher. And she told me that like she gets calls every single week saying, oh, we need a special ed teacher. And I think uh, the shortage is more pronounced in special ed than it is in any other department. And she's telling me like every week I get phone calls, I don't answer them because I've been retired for so many years and I'm trying to enjoy my retirement right now. Right. All right. No, I, I've got a special needs child. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't know how anybody does that job. It's all it's so much work. Um, and, and, you know, not everybody who goes into special ed is going to be in low incidence, self-contained classrooms like, like where my son is, but um, the needs are so great. The expectations are so great. And those students deserve those teachers. Um, yes, we need to pay teachers more. We need to have greater respect for the profession. We want to need to make sure there's enough toilet paper in the bathroom and a place to park your car. We need, you know, we need to, and, and this is true of, of so many professions where so much hinges on people being there because their heart and soul call them to be there, but that they're not so drained and exhausted that they cannot sustain their lives um, without saying, I can't, I just can't do it anymore. Um, and that, I think that that is absolutely in crisis. And I do think that um, new conversations have to be had about bringing, um, allowing teachers to have the joy of teaching high school students again or any student again and where what do we have to what do we have to give up maybe we have to pull back a little bit to bring back some of the joy um, at its best teaching is joyful and fun and at its worst it's exhausting and really really good people say i can't do it anymore i just can't yeah uh i get the feeling with a lot of former teachers I've talked to that have left the job. They just said the administration, they complain about that. And they're like, Hey, uh, I could get, I could go to another profession. Obviously I can go back to graduate school. I can go, I can go get another job and get paid comparable, uh, get paid comparably and be able to enjoy my job a little bit more. And that's something that I think teachers need to balance. They need to have like a personal life. Obviously they need to find something they enjoy and not be thinking about school 24 seven, like having a sort of work life balance while it's important to care about your students. uh, Should you be checking your email on the weekend? Should you be replying to emails on the weekend or should it's not just replying to emails? It's doing all of the grading and the, and the data, you know, entry and the data analysis, make no mistake. The, the impetus behind all of this is good. And that is this idea that 
all students deserve the very best and they deserve as many interventions and as much support as they can possibly get. That's all good stuff, but it's, it's off the chain <laughs> in terms of, and administrators get the pressure from above and above and above, and it all comes, comes you know, down. And then the students themselves are constantly being assessed and all of these things. And I have to ask myself, you know, where are we going? <laughs> like we're racing, racing, racing. Where are we going? What's what is the what does the end product look like? You know, the, that the whole thing about, you know, the, to be competitive in the 21st century for what? <laughs> if we win, what do we get? Do we, you know, what what do we get if we win that competition? Um and and and, and that is also I think um way, way off balance. If we're going to survive as a species, we need to learn how to cooperate, not compete. But, it, you know, you've asked people, what, what's the end result look like if we win this competition? I would love to hear what that answer is. Yeah, uh, that kind of goes into common core and uh, no child left behind. Those were some policies uh, that were implemented, uh, I think, after you left teaching, obviously, uh, left teaching, I think. Just after, but right when I was getting into the teaching of, right? So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. Now, I, again, I want to say this. I, I could have been a better teacher. I, I, I shortchanged a lot of my students because I wasn't focused enough on their needs because I wasn't taught to look for those things and to support them. My instincts were good. My skills were were okay. Um, I was very good for students who got C's, B's, and A's, and not so good for the other students. Um, so I, I, I could have done a better job. Um, all of these in these um, swings, all of these programs, that yeah, it's important as we're being critical of them to remember that at the basis, it's people who want the best education for students. They want the best. But sometimes in the implementation of it, it, be, it becomes its own sort of beast. <laughs> you know, it, the, the institution becomes, becomes, of the, becomes the thing. And, and we sometimes lose sight of the, the reason. You know, um, it's an interesting thing now to see how educators are, are now being really uh, encouraged to look at what do students really need? What do they really need as people, you know, in light of the pandemic and everything else? Again, that was a great catalyst for for change. Um, what are their emotional needs? What what you know? What trauma have they experienced? What are their what are their social needs? And so, I think that maybe, maybe, maybe things might start to we might be able to walk away from the edge of all of this emphasis on academic performance and look at. The, you know, the, the, the hearts and souls of, of the students until, of course, people discover that all the test scores have dropped and then they're going to lose their minds and go push all that again. Um, it's, it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. In my opinion, uh, this is something I think for school, for going to school, I think uh, the biggest thing you learn in high school is uh, how to interact with people and social skills more so than like that random thing you learn on a science test or random thing you learn in history. I think uh, building those social skills is probably, I think, the biggest thing you learn in high school that applies to real life. Because a lot of the things I've learned in high school, I know some things that 
honestly, I don't know what I would do with them. Like, <laughs> like I don't most uh, of it. <laughs> yeah, no, like, no, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Okay, I mean. I loved school when I was in high school. And I was pretty good at it, at least the history and the English parts. Um, not so much the math and science, but I still tried. But really, most of the time, I was kind of thinking about, you know, my friends and, you know, meeting them at lunch or hanging out with my boyfriend in the locker or something. <laughs> you know, it, it is. You know, we do all of these things in high school that it's important to realize to keep the, in perspective that it's just not the end of the story. It's not, it's not the end of people's education when they graduate. It's not the last thing they're going to learn. We have to get it all done by the time they're seniors. Yeah, yeah, I know. For me, it was about building social skills, building friendships. And a lot of the history, I, was always, I always had some sort of affinity towards history. I know in one of the earlier episodes, I talked about how I got interested in history, reading an ancient history book about Alexander the Great and the Persian Empire and all and all that stuff. And it's kind of gone full circle. I've taken a lot of my 400 level classes on the same ancient history while I didn't take any like 200 or 100 level classes. So it's kind of gone full circle in a, in a respect, in some respect. And uh, I think a lot of people who I talk to, like my neighbor, for example, he says, oh, I love history, but I'm an engineer because I wanted to make money. And he's like, yeah, it's really saddening how I don't know anything about history. I love history, but I don't know that much about it. And uh, do you have any book recommendations? And I'm like, if you want to read history, it takes time. You have to read. You have to assess the sources. There's like a sort of a process that I think back then they didn't really teach how to how people made history. Disciplinary literacy, I believe people call it. What do historians do? Uh, they take a source. They, they ask where, what who produced it, why they produced it. And that's a skill my neighbor didn't have. So he can't enjoy history in the way I do. So if right. I give him a book, he's not going to be able to get the same thing out of it. Well, I can assure you that that wasn't taught when I was in high school. It wasn't taught when I was in college. Uh, I didn't get a taste of that until I got into graduate school. Um, and, you know, that was one of the reasons I was actually kind of good at being a history major because the professors would lecture at me and I would take notes and then I would just memorize what they said, write it back to them. And if I got all the facts right, then I got an eight. And yeah. the first time that I was asked to think analytically about something, I mean, I panicked. <laughs> so wait a minute, wait, how do I get an A doing this? What's the right answer? I just didn't know what to do. Um, and it was, it just, it, it threw me for a while. Now, I, I mean, I think I've got the hang of it. Fortunately, more and more high school history teachers are learning to do this, um, to have students think like historians, think, um, taking a look at sources, corroborating, you know, close reading, doing, you know, thinking like historians, because you can't learn all of the history of the world. It's you just, nobody's life is that long. Um, so much history in so little time. You, you can't just read everything. And even if you do read something, it's just one, one account of it. Um, so, you know, as an engineer, your neighbor might actually really appreciate that because a lot of it is, you know, it's sort of scientific method. It's like, I'm going to, this is what I think happened. Then I'm going to get some information. I'm going to test that theory. And then at the end, um, I, mean, I may, that theory may be proven, or maybe I've got a new hypothesis about what happened because of the evidence. Yeah. Uh yeah, with the historical method, I think it's uh, 
I was on the cusp of when uh, teachers were starting to teach with the historical method and teaching the old way. So my freshman year, I actually had an instructor who was on multiple choice tests and I would just memorize everything. I was really good at memorizing all the historical facts and I would finish the test in like 10 minutes. And like people were shocked, like, oh, how did you finish it in 10 minutes? And I'm like, oh, it's not that difficult. It's just you memorize a lot of the right, things. Right. And it's not right. difficult, especially if you have like a background like I did. It was a world history class and we, we were doing ancient history. Ancient history I've always known a lot about now compared to like back then I thought I knew a lot about. But now reading so many books like Herodotus, Thucydides, uh, Peter Brown's Late Antiquity, a lot of these other books, I realized, oh, I did not know anything about this period. <laughs> but you were good at school and everybody thought you were really smart because you got, you memorized things. And, you know, for me, I was a good writer, so I could just write and write and write and write and write, but I didn't have an original thought to save my life. Yeah, I was not a good writer, actually. <laughs> I actually refined my writing. I'm still not proud of it. Uh, I still, I still need to work on it. I still need to work on it. I've gotten some programs. I've had some of my friends who know how to program, program some grammar checkers. It's not perfect, obviously, but uh, yeah, I'm still not a good writer. It's something I worked on, and a lot of people think I'm a good writer now, but I don't. I don't think it's. So. It's a process, and you're it, it, you're you're very young, so <laughs> there's still a lot of time. Yeah, I don't think I'm a good writer, but I, I like the American mentality. This is one of the few ways that I think the American mentality is how you can take a skill and you can refine it. It is actually a really good thing compared to like in Greece, uh, where if I talk, talk to people, my cousins in Greece, they say, oh, either you're a gifted writer or you're not a gifted writer. I think the mentality of saying you can refine your skill and you can get better at writing is something that I really appreciate about the American education system and how you can take a skill. Hey, I'm not good at writing. Like for example, myself, I was not good at writing and I worked and I refined that skill. And now I think I'm at a passable rate and mm -hmm. I can even refine that skill even more and I can become a good writer. So that's something I think uh, the American education system actually does very well for all the critiques I give it. Good, good. That's a that's a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. <laughs> that's one of the latest things in education. Yeah. It's te teaching us that, you know, it's not, I mean, let's face it, there are some things that not everybody's meant to do. But once you narrow, you know, get those off the table, um, this idea that, that, yeah, you can improve it. You don't have to be perfect at it. Um, it it's okay. Uh, and that's a super important thing for you to remember in teaching too, by the way, is, you know, don't, people times, sometimes sweat it and try to have it, you know, this excellent lesson plan every single day and, and you can't pull that off. Sometimes you just, as one veteran teacher said, you just have to get it to good um, and good is good enough. And yeah. Next time it'll be better. So, yeah, I have that mentality with my chess, obviously. I've been playing chess a lot during the pandemic, and I'm trying to get to, like, a certain place where I'm good, but not, like, amazing. I don't want to be, like, grandmaster level. No. <laughs> I just want to be at a level that's very good. And I have an instructor, and I said, hey, I'm being wow. honest with you. I just want to get to a level where I'm pretty respectable. And uh, <laughs> where I'm not making a fool of myself. Yeah, <laughs> we learned to play chess when we were kids, and I never understood the strategy part. I, I couldn't see, I couldn't 
picture of those next steps. So for me, I just always played a war of attrition. Just not, not, not cough as many players as you can, and maybe I'll win. It was not, um, I think maybe now I'd be better at it, but it was just not a skill I had at the time. <laughs> yeah. For me, I played it when I was little, and my parents didn't encourage it. It kind of, my parents have kind of shifted a little bit towards um, chess and other games like that. They thought it, they have more of like this traditionalist mindset, like, oh, it's a nerdy game. They kind of, I don't know. To me, it is a kind of a nerdy game, let's face it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but today, if you look at no, the No, it's, it's not. Yeah. Today, yeah. if you look at the world champion, Magnus Carlsen, he looks like uh, like your uh, typical person walking down the street. He doesn't look like the stereotypical nerd or anything. Right. Like no, I, I would think that it, anything that teaches you how to um, strategize, think ahead, any of those things, um, that's going to be really, really essential. Yeah. Yeah, my mom has kind of shifted on that, and I think that's really good. And it kind of shows how people can change in some respects, and it could be a beneficial change, like in the case of my parents. So Right, right. Okay. What else would you like to talk about? And then, uh, yeah, another thing is the school board elections. There mm-hmm. were recently school board elections in my uh, area. I believe it was like maybe nine months ago it wasn't directly it wasn't directly tied with the recent school board elections uh-huh. as a teacher or as someone who's a teaching of history uh, person who's part of the program how how what impact do those elections have well i mean narrow your question down because that's that's pretty big so for example i guess i'll there was a candidate i'm not gonna say names obviously who was not very pro teacher he was trying to present himself as someone who didn't like teachers oh teachers are the bad people and uh, he lost he lost obviously uh, but how do teachers deal with certain parents who want to run for the school board that really don't really who aren't really fans of them well it's an interesting dynamic um you know, school boards are probably, you know, the most, like the closest thing you're going to get um, to people who can really affect your, your day-to-day life. And, you know, in my, where I live, most people run unopposed because nobody wants to do that work unless they really, really want to do that work. And the stipend is not worth it. Sometimes there are hotly contested races. Um, but I mean, the school members, board members, like they have to make really, really difficult decisions for a polarized community. And, um, you know, it, you want to ask yourself, like, why do people want to be on the school board? How do they perceive, what do they perceive the, the function of the school board to be? Mm-hmm. And very often they are parents, right? So parents may have a progressive um, point of view and they want things to change and they want things to, um, they want their worldview, you know, supported in schools and others teach this goes right back to our original discussion. Other people are, 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 you know, maybe more conservative and they're afraid that things are going too far left. And so they want to make sure that um, the school reflects their values. Um, and so this is not news. Yeah. This is just not news. It's not news. It happens all the time. It's, it's always happened. It's always going to happen. If somebody wants to be on the school board badly enough and they got to want it, then there's going to have to be a reason for that. And the reason I think is because if you, are on the, if you want to be on the school board, I think you, you have a sense or a hope that 
your presence there will help affect change or preserve status quo at the most basic um, level of, um, I'm, I'm not finding the right word, at, at, like at the most basic level, right? What happens? How do our children are educated? Yeah. That is like religion. That is sacred space to many, many parents. Mm-hmm. How are the children being educated? And so if you want to be on the school board, then you you have um, a certain zeal for making sure that students are educated in the way that you believe. Well, in a pluralistic society, in um, even in small communities, you're going to see a lot of um, diversity on that. And then there's going to be passion involved. And I don't, I think ultimately it's probably pretty healthy. Yeah. You know what? As opposed to a school board, it's like, wah, 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 whatever, and nobody cares, and nobody goes to the meetings, and nobody cares about the issues, and the, nobody challenges anything at all. Um, I think it's healthier to have um, this kind of passion and, and these kinds of um, discussions happening and, and, and hotly contested races for the school board. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> In my area, there were six candidates who ran and there was four seats open. So there was uh, two people who unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, did not, uh, did not get a seat. Um, and talking about that passion, like my neighbor uh, who lives down the street actually ran for the school board. And when I talked to her, she asked for my signature. And I asked her, why are you running for the school board? Like, what's your reason for running for the school board? And she told me, like, oh, her son has special needs. And I'm like, okay. And what's going on with the special ed department at the school? Oh, the special ed department has a lot of issues. And I tried to get her to give me specifics. So what's wrong? Oh, we don't have a special ed director right now. The school board's kind of responsible for hiring that. And I'm like, okay. So how do you feel about the special ed department? And she's like, oh, it's not doing enough for my child. I, I want it to be better for other students. A lot of other parents are complaining. And I'm like, okay. Uh, she didn't really give me any concrete solutions, but I could tell she really cared. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to sign this. And uh, if I ask you, uh, what's your plan? What are you doing for the special ed uh, department? I, I want a concrete answer eventually. And uh, she, they did eventually hire someone for the special ed uh, department. And uh, I've heard from many parents that she's done a wonderful job and uh, it looks like she's done a very good job on the school board, but I haven't checked back in. I said, one of these days I'm going to check back in to see how you're doing because I signed yeah. the paper and and that's pretty valuable to get you on the ballot, obviously. Right, so, right. Well, good for you and good for her. <laughs> Democracy in action, civic engagement. Yeah, What's not to love, right? But I mean, it's going to be ugly sometimes. I mean, there's a, there are school, you know, I've got a, a former um, colleague from graduate school who's um, talking about, um, she taught at York High School. And right now there's a huge debate going on about critical race theory and all this stuff. And, and you know, criticizing a teacher for teaching uh, a certain way. And, you know, it's very, very fiery, very involved. And I think as, as disturbing as it feels, I think that's also really healthy. I think people should care about what's going on in schools. I think that 
I need to listen to somebody else's point of view. I mean, it's very difficult. I went to a school board meeting this summer. Um, actually, no, it was late August, early September about, you know, whether the school board would require masks in the school. And of course, the next day, the governor mandated it. So it was kind of a moot point. But um, there were a lot of really, really passionate people who didn't think masks should be required. And I found their points of view very, very disturbing. And I was there for, you know, the opposite side saying, you know, that we we should have the masks in the school. But at the same time, I had to say, wow, look at all that civic engagement. <laughs> we completely disagree with each other. Um, but they are here and they organized and they mobilized and, and, and they are participating. And I think that's a healthier thing, ultimately. Um, and I think it's a, as, as hard as it might be to digest and to experience, I think the opposite is worse. Yeah, an apathetic citizen's injury is obvious, is something that's very dangerous to have a school board where it's not being challenged and they just make decisions and you're like, oh, that's that's how it is. There's nothing I can do about it. I don't want to go to the school board meeting. It's not a big deal. That's right. very dangerous. It's uh, even with the mass debate, regardless on where anyone stands on it, at least there's some sort of engagement, like there's some sort of discussion and it shows that these people are passionate about their beliefs. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of passion <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, was on our side, too, you know, um, but it was it, it was good. It was a good thing to see. Yeah, I was thinking like um, about um, vaccines. Also, there's kind of a controversy with vaccines. If your student's in close contact with COVID, how long should your student uh, not be at school? My mom got really fired up about that. And I'm like, I don't know. And the principal said, oh, my hands are kind of tied here. I really can't do anything for you. It's kind of difficult for me. The require the state requirements is like seven days. I can't do anything here. And my mom was very right. fiery and passionate. And I was like, oh, I can show a negative COVID test. And he's like, yeah, but I have to follow the rules. It's not right. something that's outside, it's outside of my control. And, and I kind of feel sorry. I felt sorry for the guy. I'm like, I'm like, mom, he really can't do anything. He kind of has his hands tied. Yes. Like, he yes. can do something. And I'm like, he kind of has his hands tied. He can't really can't do anything. Like, Right. That's federalism. <laughs> he can't. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. He can't, he can't really do anything. And I, I see a lot of people in the school environments and how some people really, they like their schools in some respect, but I think uh, a lot of people don't see like, how good their school is and how much they like that school. Cause I, cause as humans, we typically focus on the negativity and how our school is so bad. Like, Oh, um, I remember my neighbor, he used to be a former CPS teacher. He said, yeah, at the one CPS school you used to teach at, they don't have someone to clean the bathrooms. He said, I'll go over there and clean the bathrooms. He said, I don't know if you know what school I'm referring to. No, no, but that's wonderful. Right. I mean, it's terrible and wonderful at the same time. It really is. In terms of, uh, I guess we'll conclude this with a uh, food for thought. Uh, in terms of uh, the teaching of history major, I know a lot of, uh, I know I talked to Professor Schultz earlier and he said a lot of the growth with the hi uh, history department is associated with the teaching of history major. Uh, have you seen continue, continued growth of the teaching of history major or has there been a decline like with the history major? No, absolute growth. Um, we, you know, things have ebbed and flowed. There were a couple of years where uh, people weren't going into it because the job market was so tight. I think it was part of it. 
Um, there are jobs for teachers now, and I think that that helps incentivize it a little bit. But I don't think people coming into this profession really think in those terms because people came in knowing that it was going to be hard and they, they just felt passionate about being teachers. I just think people want to be effective in some way in their lives for whatever reason it is. Maybe their teachers are doing a better job. Um, but I, I, like I said, I, I've got people changing their major every week from something else to teaching history or from history to teaching history. Uh, I think that uh, something's happening that's really exciting and I can't put my finger on it, uh, that people want to be, they want their life calling to matter. And they, and people have always felt that way, but I do think that there's a shift. I can't tell you what it is. I can't tell you why it is. I couldn't even tell you, I couldn't name it, but it does seem that there are more and more people who want to be teachers. And I think that that's very, very exciting um, and uh, healthy, certainly healthy for our department, healthy for the profession. And in the short term, there will probably be jobs for people when they come out, which is nice to see. I had, we had some years where um, there were not jobs. It was very difficult to watch people who'd worked so hard, not be able to find a job in teaching Um and it's not a guarantee now, but especially people strategize with um, endorsements and other, you know, adding more qualifications to their license. Chances are really good they're going to find a job. Whether they're going to want to stay in that job for the, the length of their profession, that remains to be seen. And I, I hope that um, that starts to shift as well. So we get more of a balance for the students, for, for the teachers, for everyone. Um, I think in some ways we need to get over ourselves. And just understand kind of what you talked about, what high school is really about. Obviously, we want to give students every opportunity to succeed. We, we, every single student deserves that. At the same time, we have to remember that it's not all or nothing. It's not the end of the world if people don't get good grades. <laughs> it's certainly not the end of the world if they don't go to college because not, every, not everybody should uh, go to college, and we desperately need people who are not going to college to learn how to do other things. The, the, the ultimate goal is people are good people, that they're good, thoughtful, civically engaged, good listening kinds of people. Whether they work at Walmart or whether they get a, a high-paying job, it doesn't matter. Um, I think that that's the ultimate goal um, is of high school, and and we want to keep that in mind as we try and remember all the things we're trying to get done and all the pressure we're putting on people uh, to try and get it done. And yeah. none of it's going to happen if we don't have teachers, yeah. <laughs> so, right? Well, that's not actually true either. It'll happen somewhere else, but it's, it's going to be harder to get done in schools. So we don't have people who can, who are, are being supported and doing the job. Yeah. This was a really interesting conversation. I knew this was probably going to be one of the more interesting ones when it, oh, came, thank to, you. <laughs> when it came to current events. And obviously since I know you and uh, we've talked before in person before the COVID-19 pandemic, unlike some of my other conversations where I've barely known the professor. And it's uh, harder. Yeah, yeah. A little bit harder, but yeah, this is obviously, it was very interesting for me because. Good. Well, it's interesting I, for me too. I appreciate, I'm honored that you asked me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, um, 